0: From 90.7 WFAE, this is Newsworthy for Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. I'm Eric Thiel. One of Charlotte's most popular breweries, Wooden Robot, said Tuesday afternoon that its co-founder was killed in an accidental fall at its South End location. Dan Wade died at the building on West Summit Avenue near South Tryon Street. Medic, Mecklenburg's paramedic agency, confirmed that one person was killed in a fall. Wade was one of Wooden Robot's two co-founders and its director of operations. The brewery said Tuesday that its South End and Noda tap rooms were closed until further notice. In a statement, co-founder Josh Patton asked people to keep Wade's wife and son in their thoughts and prayers. TGK officials have released more information about efforts to control the deer population in the South Carolina community just north of Rock Hill. WSOC reports the city said it culled more than 30 deer over a two-week period in January. South Carolina's Department of Natural Resources approved a plan to kill a total of 160 deer. However, USDA sharpshooters were unable to cull as many deer as they hoped due to the work being limited to golf courses. WCNC reports the effort has cost more than $42,000. Council said it's now considering other options to control the population. American Airlines said Tuesday that checking a bag will cost travelers more and that some ticket bookings will no longer earn miles and loyalty points. Eli Portillo has more. American
1: Airlines operates about 90 percent of flights from Charlotte Douglas. The carrier is raising its fee for checking a bag by as much as $10 each way on domestic flights. A first checked bag will cost $35 if travelers pay ahead of time online and $40 if paid at the airport. A second bag will cost $45. American Airlines credit card holders and travelers with status will still get a first-checked bag free. American also said that starting May 1st, customers will only get frequent flyer miles on flights booked directly with the airline or via preferred travel agencies. The airline will publish a list of travel agencies that are still eligible to get points for their customers in late April. And basic economy tickets, the airline's cheapest fare level, will only be eligible for frequent
0: flyer miles when they're booked directly with the airline. Eli Portillo? WFAE News. Charlotte-based Truist says it's reached a deal to sell its insurance subsidiary in a deal that values the insurance business at $15.5 billion. Truist expects to net more than $10 billion from the sale to an investment group that includes private equity firm Stone Point Capital and Mubadala Investment Company, the United Arab Emirates sovereign wealth fund. The Huntersville Town Board of Commissioners voted Monday night to approve financing and enter into a construction contract to build a new town hall. The new building will bring together nearly all town office employees into one building, streamlining operations, and will give residents more convenient access to town staff and services. It will be located on Highway 115 behind the current Huntersville Town Hall and will be 54,000 square feet. The project is expected to be completed by late 2025, and will be paid for by limited obligation bonds. The total cost is expected to be just under $30 million. Former President Donald Trump Tuesday endorsed North Carolina Republican House Speaker Tim Moore in his bid to win the redrawn 14th Congressional District. Steve Harrison has this report.
2: The heavily Republican
0: 14th includes western and northern parts of Mecklenburg County and then stretches west to Rutherford and Polk Counties. Moore is facing two Republicans in the March 5th primary, Jeffrey Gregory and Lillian Joseph. Trump wrote on Truth Social that Moore is a proven conservative and has his complete and total endorsement. Trump has also endorsed two Republican congressional incumbents, Virginia Fox and Richard Hudson, and newcomer Addison McDowell in the 6th District. Donald Trump Jr. is in North Carolina this week to stump for McDowell. Steve Harrison, WFAE News. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley will be in Charlotte on March 1st ahead of the Super Tuesday primary March 5th. She'll host a political rally at Suffolk Punch in South End. North Carolina state health officials are expanding their mental health resources with a hotline that allows people in crisis to talk with someone that has been through a similar experience. Public Radio East's Annette Weston Riggs has more.
3: Officials with the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services said the Peer Warmline will work with North Carolina 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by giving callers the option to talk with a peer support specialist. They said peer support specialists, or peers, are people living in recovery with mental illness and or substance use disorder who provide support to others who can benefit from their lived experience. People in crisis who want to talk with a peer can call 1-855-PEERS-NC, and people who call 988 will also have the option to connect with the peer warm line. I'm Annette Weston-Riggs.
0: Mecklenburg County's Meals on Wheels program has been around since the 1970s, delivering meals to homebound older adults and people who are disabled. But it's not just a daily meal that the program provides to people in need. It's also a friend. Nick Delacanel has the story. Good
3: morning, good morning. How are
4: you? Meet Todd Bowman, a volunteer with the local Meals on Wheels program run by Nourish Up, formerly known as Loaves and Fishes.
3: This was laying on your driveway. Got a piece of mail.
4: Every Wednesday, he steps into the kitchen of this small brick ranch in North Charlotte to drop off a microwavable meal to Larry Hall.
3: Chicken. Uh,
2: Potatoes and green beans.
4: And this is boost,
5: isn't it?
2: Yeah. A protein
4: shake. He also checks up on Hall and notices today he has a black eye. Did you run into things again? Yeah, bumped into something. Hall is blind in his right eye. He can't see well enough to cook or to drive. And so having someone deliver meals is really important to him. You know, I've got other foods and all, but this is my main meal. Bowman began delivering for Meals on Wheels three years ago after seeing his mother-in-law benefit from the program before she moved to assisted care. And I decided it was just time to give something back because of how much we got out of it. He says most people on his route are nice. Some appreciate a quick check-in, others want their food left by the door, but he says Hall always wants a little more company and conversation. He's always been really friendly, um, really good guy. Over the past year and a half, The two have formed a close friendship built on small acts of kindness. It started early on when Hall didn't come to the door one day when Bowman knocked. But he was very concerned that I wasn't uh, here and something had happened. He called him up just to make sure he was okay. He was fine. He just had an appointment at the Veterans Affairs office. Another time, Bowman remembers walking in to see Hall struggling with some electrical circuits in his kitchen
2: and his microwave had died, essentially. And he was explaining to me the situation, and I asked him, okay, what's, what's the solution here? What are you gonna do? And he said, well, I haven't quite
4: figured that out yet. Without a microwave, Hall couldn't heat his food, and he couldn't just drive himself to the store to buy a new one. So I came back after finishing up the meal delivery
3: that afternoon, and we went to Target and bought a new microwave. I also got a coffee pot, too.
4: We had a nice shopping spree. It wasn't something Bowman had to do, All says, but it meant a lot to him. You can imagine, given my condition, what shape I would have been in. And he took...
3: Don't go getting emotional on me here, Larry. I'm fine.
4: He took enough interest... to show an interest and do something about it. Hall doesn't have family in Charlotte, and the only other folks who stop by are the people he's hired to help clean his house, deliver groceries, and mow his lawn. So having a friend like Bowman, who he can talk and catch up with every week, has made him feel grateful. The two have even gone on more shopping sprees. Bowman and his wife took him out to buy some new clothes, and he met Bowman's kids over the holidays.
0: It's what they've done for me.
4: That's, that's why it's my own Even if Bowman one day stops volunteering, though he has no plans to, he's certain they'll stay in touch. They were brought together by kindness, the kind that sticks. Nick Della WFAE
0: News. This story was produced as part of our Finding Joy series, where we look for the bright spots in the news landscape. If you've got a story to share, send us a tip through our website, wfae.org joy. A charged political climate, a Republican presidential primary poised to be a blowout, a general election that could have seismic repercussions on the country's direction. That's all true in the current 2024 presidential race, but a new podcast proposes it was also true back in 1976 in an election that shaped the conditions for today's political environment. That podcast is Landslide. Its creator and host, former WFAE reporter Ben Bradford and WFAE is a producing partner. Ben joined our Marshall Terry to discuss. Hey, Ben.
1: Hey, Marshall. Good to be back. Uh, It's great to have you. So make me care about 1976. Why does it matter for us today? Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways, there is a straight line
2: that connects that election to where we are today, in how the parties operate, in the issues that divide voters. And basic ways that our politics and government function. And I think that one of the big things that the podcast explores, which just feels so relevant right now, is how the current Republican Party took shape. And I think there's this tendency to think that today's GOP, with former President Trump, you know, the likely nominee, that that's some kind of a historical aberration, a, a break from the past you know, I mean, this is the first presidential candidate to refuse to concede an election. He'd lost. Trumpism, what's sort of termed the new right these days, uh, is a rejection of some long-standing Republican positions on things like defense and trade and spending. And one of the things that the podcast explores is how that's actually not something that came from nowhere, but rather a continuation of forces that have built in the party for almost 50 years. And we sort of explore how those forces began to build and when we start to see them reflected in the national politics of America. So
1: take us back. What's happening almost 50 years ago?
2: Yeah, writ large, the country is struggling. This is the aftermath of Watergate in Vietnam. Uh, The economy is foundering with stagflation. And this new thing is happening where Americans' faith in government has just collapsed. So- Gerald Ford is the unelected president who's taken over unexpectedly after Nixon resigns. And instead of retiring, which is what he'd been planning to do, he's trying to hold the country together. And simultaneously, there is this other thing happening in the political parties. And this is really hard for us to conceive of today. But the two major parties at that time were not primarily divided by ideology, you know, it wasn't, this is a conservative party and a more liberal party. That was not the key differentiator between the parties. So as the vice president, Nelson Rockefeller, a liberal Republican, said,
3: I don't want to see one party of the right and one of the left.
2: But as Gerald Ford is just besieged by challenges, this growing movement of conservatives within his party launches a rebellion. And when I say conservative, I mean Culturally and socially, rather than just you know economically, which is what Ford was, and so these conservatives find their own candidate to challenge Ford in the primaries. And who was that? Yeah, that was this uh, former actor who was widely seen as extreme and fringe, and has given almost no chance of actually winning the nomination from Ford. Uh, and that's Ronald Reagan. And the primary battle between Ford and Reagan looks like it's going to be a blowout, kind of like today's. But Reagan comes back. And the results, and then what follows in the general election, uh, and sort of snowballs, it really reshapes our political landscape in ways that we're still grappling with.
1: And we have an excerpt from *Landslide* that we're going to play. Uh, this is a bit of the trailer.
4: The state of the union is not good. Not good. Not good. The energy crisis has developed into a money crisis. Not only-
5: Gasoline lines and empty pumps.
4: The second day in a row, a sniper is fired at a school bus as the controversy over textbooks continued.
2: In the mid-1970s, America seemed to be falling apart. A new president, who never even sought the office, had the task of cleaning it up. It was as if the weight of the world had fallen upon to Jerry Ford. Gerald Ford saw his job as uniting the country,
5: He was such a decent person. We're going to have a president that we can work with. Until
2: he faced a challenge from the edge of his political party.
3: Political shockwaves of Ronald Reagan's entry into the presidential race. We have perverted our Constitution.
0: Perverted it with regard to a welfare clause that doesn't exist. Perverted it with regard to... The question
2: was, is he too dangerous? Is he too crazy? This is the story of the closest presidential primary race in American history.
3: We had a pretty bitter contest. It's a standoff at this hour.
2: Head to head, knocked down, dragged out affair. And it's the story of when the Republican Party became a conservative party.
5: More and more analysts are predicting the Republicans will go the way of the Whigs.
1: the podcast is landslide ben bradford whom i've been speaking with is the creator and host And the first episode is out now on all the major podcast apps i thanks so much for joining me ben it was great speaking with you thanks for having me landslide is produced by Nuance tales in partnership with wfae and is part of the npr network ben will be back with us over the course of its run to give us exclusive previews excerpts and insights
0: It's been just over 125 years since hundreds of African Americans were killed in Wilmington by white supremacists who feared the success of the port city's thriving black middle class. They staged a successful coup to force numerous black elected and appointed officials and white officials who did not share their racist views from their positions. The conservative John Locke Foundation has produced a short fictional film on the massacre. Gwendolyn Glenn has this report on why the film is attracting criticism.
6: The massacre happened at a time when Wilmington's predominantly African-American population was well-educated, owned businesses, and shared power with whites in a city that was surprisingly integrated. White supremacists intimidated black voters in the 1890 election to win seats in the state legislature, but that still left black elected officials in local offices they devised and carried out a murderous plan that started with the burning of the building that held the city's black newspaper, The Daily Record. Historian Lynn Molenauer teaches at UNC Wilmington and leads various research and other 1898 initiatives. She describes the massacre with sounds from an audio reenactment in the background
5: you've got um, this mob of armed white men who've just burned down a building and they begin to shoot people um, starting at the intersection of 4th and Harnett. Then the mob marches off towards the north side, which is the majority black neighborhood, and they begin to shoot people um, starting at the intersection of 4th and Hornet. You have black folks who are fleeing into churches, right, looking for sanctuary. Many folks flee into Pine Forest Cemetery, the African-American cemetery in town.
6: Ninety-one-year-old Dr. Lewin Manley is the grandson of Alexander Manley, the owner and editor of Wilmington's Black newspaper. He escaped before his offices were burned. Manley says his two aunts related the horror of the massacre to only a few people.
0: Their older brother had to go to the school to bring them home, so apparently they saw the mayhem in the streets as they went home, people being shot down, the bloody mess that was occurring. And apparently they suffered from post-stress syndrome for the rest of their lives. I tried my best to get them to talk about it, and they would not.
6: Many of the survivors were forced to leave Wilmington, losing their homes, land, and businesses, generational wealth. Several documentaries and books have depicted the horrors, but a new fictional account of the bloody massacre in the Pines, produced by the John Locke Foundation, is drawing lots of criticism. It's billed as being based on true events, but it does not show the slaughter of black residents. It focuses mainly on the romance of a white couple. There's one more thing I gotta do.
5: You promised we would leave today, Sam. We waited until the election was over, and it's over, Sam.
3: What are we gonna do? The film is not designed to be a comprehensive history of the events in 1898, which, as you know, are very involved, nuanced, complicated. That's Locke's senior fellow, Troy Kickler. But I do believe that it does make history interesting in a way that documentaries don't quite appeal to the general general public that a short film may do. The cinematic creativity was to have that love story in there to try to uh, keep the film interesting and entertaining and hopefully motivate people to learn more about this complicated past. The foundation's creative director, Greg
6: Dug, explains why they decided to leave the violence in the background only.
1: The story was the the girl from the one side falls in love with the guy from the other side. And we just felt like if we disconnected the, the history a little bit, like separated it a little bit from like something, a, a palatable story that people are used to seeing, like a love story, right? It would be a way that we could get that truth out. I mean, nobody's going to say, hey, do you want to go see that story about hundreds of Black people getting massacred, right? We, we might not be as effective as if, hey, do you want to see that movie? It's a love story.
5: The story of 1898 is not a story that can be told through the eyes of two young lovers who are white.
6: Molinar saw the in the Pines trailer and says she found the love story theme offensive.
5: We do not do it justice by shielding the audience from its horrors. I wonder how we can learn anything about ourselves or past events if they're not represented in a way that we can comprehend it.
6: Elaine Brown is the great-great-granddaughter of Joshua Halsey, who was shot 14 times by white supremacists with a rapid-fire Gatlin gun during the massacre. Brown is appalled by the film. When you're talking about a love story in
3: 1898 versus a massacre and people being murdered, my grandfather being one of them, how does that fit in your love
6: story? You have to look at what was going on. It is a story of survival. Doug, who is from North Carolina, says he had never heard of the 1898 massacre prior to a colleague sending him information on it. He says he was intrigued when he learned that the white supremacists behind the massacre were Democrats.
1: We read about the lead up to it, the Democrats' white supremacy campaign. And we were like, this really happened? Holy cow. We thought, like, this is a good candidate for getting people interested in North Carolina history, like something really significant.
6: During the late 1800s, most Democrats were from Southern states, staunchly conservative and white supremacy supporters. The Republican party was more liberal then, but that slowly flipped over the years. Ashley was a real Southern lady. In the Pines is narrated by the role of the fictionalized black newspaper publisher's daughter. In it, she talks to fictional documentarians about Wilmington's Democrats. My father's paper was the only black daily in all the nation. He was the only one standing up to the Democrats and their lives. The Democrats violently overthrew a sitting government. Hundreds of black people were slaughtered. Can you say
1: that again? Only this time use the word...
6: White supremacists. To which she answers, I was there and they were Democrats. It's
4: about what they wanted to show people, to try to shift people's opinions today.
6: North Carolina Democratic State Senator Greg Meyer says he saw the trailer for the film and described it as biased propaganda.
4: I hear this from conservatives frequently in debates about race and politics, and they want to say, oh, well, you know, it was Democrats who did all of these bad things. And sure, that's historically true, but it sure seems like a cover up for where the two parties are related to race today. Um, There's so much misinformation in the world right now. And this film feels like a willful extension of that misinformation just extending into the lane of history.
6: Locke Foundation officials deny those charges. Senior fellow Tickler says they would like to expand the film to make it more comprehensive. He says in the meantime, they will make more concrete information available on their website.
3: NorthCarolinaHistory.org is a website that the John Locke Foundation has, and we're going to have some more about the events in Wilmington in 1898, and I think what would be a good inclusion is to have a recommended bibliography for pe- people to read, going back a few years after the events occurred to the most recent publications on the events. And that's not going far enough for Dr. Manley.
0: The part I saw was a worthless piece of history. There's nothing there. Uh, my grandfather, if he would to mention Manley as being the prototype of that, then I guess I'd talk to a lawyer. I wouldn't want that, his name associated in any form or fashion.
6: In the Pines has been shown at about 30 film festivals outside the country and in some North Carolina cities. It has not been shown in Wilmington. Upcoming viewings include Wake Forest on March 1st and Buenos Aires, Argentina on March 31st. For WFA News, I'm Gwendolyn Glenn.
0: And for Tuesday, February 21st, that's Newsworthy. I'm Eric Teal.